0: Welcome to Boxes and Lines, a different kind of finance podcast from a different kind of stock exchange, featuring IEX founder Ronan Ryan and Chief Market Policy Officer John Ramsey. Now here to give you the straight talk on how the markets really work, it's Ronan and JR.
1: Welcome everybody to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines.
0: Welcome to Boxes and Lines. We're so glad to have you. We have
2: two more members from the IEX diaspora who have come back to us. That means the IEX alumni. Yeah. He thinks it means, he thinks, he thought I said di- diarrhea, but it's a, we, we know, you know what that term I didn't means. know.
1: But our, yeah. our, our guests are, yes, they're in our alumni series. We have Dan Azen, CEO of Proof, one of the co-founders of uh, IEX was head of quantitative strategy at IEX prior to leaving and Allison Bishop, who is the president of Proof Trading, former quantitative researcher at IEX. Welcome guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome back to the office. So glad. Welcome back. And, you know,
2: uh, people who read the book probably know that Dan was often known here internally as Puzz.
1: Yeah. I am going to slip because I've never called him Dan or Daniel in his life. And it always freaks him out. He doesn't know the answer. So (laughs) if I say Puzz, people, that is Dan Azen, CEO approved. There's a story behind it. I'll tell a story real quick, right? Didn't you? We were part of a winning team of a Microsoft National Puzzle Competition while he was at Stanford University, so when he worked at RBC, he was our wicked smat guy, and we used to call him Puzzle. Wicked smat. Wicked, wicked SMAT. smat. How about them apples? Mm-hmm. Yeah, anyway,
2: exactly.
1: so they, they left IEX before we started doing this podcast thing. So they didn't know, know us as podcast stars. They, they did. I, I like amazing. And now you must just be so
2: astounded that
1: you're in the company of these luminaries. Let's get into proof trading. Mm-hmm. Um, you mm-hmm. left us. Start <laughs> proof trading. So now you're going to answer some real questions. Yeah, you're not bitter, though. So mm. Proof is built as a new institutional equities execution platform launched in 2021. Um, tell us about Proof and where did you see an opportunity in the industry to offer something new and differentiated? You can tell
3: I wrote that question. <laughs> Should I take this one? Go all for right. it. So, I mean, as you know, prior to IAX, we were all at RBC together and building algorithmic trading. Um And so proof is is almost going back to those roots, going back to what we were doing at RBC. And I think, you know, we'd all agree going back in time when we were at RBC, there was this big vacuum in the market at the exchange layer where all the exchanges were catering to HFT, all the new tools that were coming out, the new order types, the new pricing mechanisms, all of that really geared towards HFT, not geared towards long-term investors. And that was kind of the opportunity for us in starting IEX. And then also kind of all the situations where long-term investors were getting picked off left and right. The exchanges didn't have an offering. Yep. IX was kind of the first one to kind of answer that. And we worked on some of those tools and you know, under your leadership. And now, now <laughs> so kind you a kind of kind of, nice suck up to yeah, that yeah. But now there's a lot of solutions in this space. IX is kind of the leader and you guys are continuing to innovate. But this there's a lot of answers to that. And we felt, you know, working here, one one thing we saw is like we would work on these tools and enhance them and there wasn't necessarily like for every incremental improvement that we would introduce into these tools as a team, there wasn't that incremental adoption on the on the sell side. Yep. And there's definitely still a lot of conflicts of interest on the sell side that dictate their routing behaviors and it's not just the quality of the tools on the street and so we from our side it's like this seemed like a great opportunity to leverage that experience that we we developed together here and apply our skill set to this kind of more impactful potentially more impactful problem.
4: Yeah, I would also say from a data science perspective, sort of working on the problems at the market microstructure layer, the data is very clean. You have a lot of examples of it happening every day. So you can sort of do straightforward science and sort of see the results. I think when you back up a layer and you're looking at performance over minutes, over hours, over days, there's a lot more noise and it's a much more challenging sort of scientific problem. So it's been fun for us to sort of take our scientific approach sort of up the timescale ladder and to see what we can learn about trading at those um. At those higher timescales for our clients,
1: that's no, great. Look, I have I, read a lot of your blogs. Don't fully understand every one of them, but I do I do I do my best. And sort of like you, you said, pause when when we rolled out certain things. So like we have the signal, obviously, as you know, you were one of the inventors of the signal. As we had different versions of it, we didn't necessarily see people jump in and adopt to it very mm-hmm. quickly. On the flip side, when you when you're dealing with the buy side and you're coming out with like your blogs and your
3: your proof, your data. You know how is that being received? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, and I think like we are so in the weeds on these topics, yeah. and we, you know, we love it. We eat, yeah. like same at IAX. We yeah. we would talk about this stuff day in and day out, and we were so into it. And there is that subset of clients who lives and breathes this stuff just like we do, and we have those great conversations with them. Um, one thing that I think is a little different is a lot more proof than than maybe at IX or RBC. We have a lot more conversations with the kind of systematic quant funds yep. uh, that we didn't have in the past. And I think those are, you know, that's been like a fantastic new avenue of just collaboration and really interesting conversations. Uh, but most people, you know, don't seem to get
0: quite. <laughs> they don't
1: think
3: it's as cool <laughs> as we do.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: For being honest. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I,
3: it's important
2: to be able to also communicate highly complex um, concepts at at a level that people are prepared to be able to digest and understand and kind of all of that. One thing that I loved so much about having you here was during the exchange fight and everything is we had like this great like yes. left brain white right brain kind of uh, collaboration, you know, so that it so. We we would like uh, do the Vulcan mind meld, and then yeah. like you know put all of these things. So that, but that's a real challenge. And now you're hindered by the fact that you don't have me to help in doing that. Well, you yeah, but yeah. <laughs> well, you've got a lot of great stuff on your on your website though uh, to kind of help. Yeah, I
4: draw upon my extensive experience in stand up comedy for the most part. <laughs> <doing> <laughs> I the communications.
2: That. I see. Uh well I'm I'm sure that I'm sure that comes in handy. But I, I don't know. Uh and maybe for this podcast as well, you know, we're rather filthy uh on this podcast. We have heard that them. as
4: one of your yeah. eleven listeners, yes. Yeah,
1: it is,
3: it is, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. All right. Well let me then so when you're dealing with the I guess your client base at large, how do you cut through the noise? Like how do you show them the data and then they, they go, I'll use this?
3: So I mean one thing on that front is We really haven't had trouble getting in front of people. I think, I mean, it's definitely true that there's a subset that gravitates towards the things that we talk about, things that we care about. But for the most part, there aren't new players in this space, right? All of our competitors are big banks. They've had been around for 20 years, you know, in the electronic trading space for 20, 30 years. They have very similar offerings to what they had 10 years ago. There's not that much new up and coming stuff. And we are very out in the open about everything we do. We blog everything about the company from the trading products and the research, the quant research, but also what it's like to build a company from scratch and fundraising and, you know, dealing with team issues and just every little thing about this company, we just are very open about. And I think that's a unique thing that doesn't exist in this industry. And so we get a lot of inbound. We have really very little trouble getting in front of people, getting people to cross that, you know, bridge of, signing up and trading and yeah, I mean, that's a different question, but yeah, in terms of cutting through the noise, it's been, that's been pretty straightforward.
4: I think almost the question we get more often is kind of the opposite. It's like, you guys are so different. How do you find a way to put your pitch in a language that people are sort of used to hearing? And I think mm-hmm. that's sort of more of the process that we're still, mm-hmm. we're still working on.
1: Yeah. Cause it's, I mean, look, there's, there's a lot of institutional brokers out there. There's, there's maybe less of them now than there were before, but i um, trying to get the buy side to take on new brokers is always difficult. And I think some of the time, and it's it's like you said, we love talking about this shit, but when you really think about it, the buy side trader does more, particularly than venue selection. So then there's broker selection. They have a lot on their plate. So kind of distilling this down to something that they could maybe pitch internally as to why they should give uh, like an agency only broker dealer a shot. That's got to be a little bit difficult, but. Also rewarding. and, And
2: I would think that one of the challenges for you is not just selling people theoretically on the idea that the algos and the technology they're using will deliver a better result, but proving it out no pun intended right um he so practice practicing that line you know <laughs> you gotta give me a yeah, give me a little credit um maybe a little a bit of a leap of faith maybe that's the wrong term but in order to really understand how um uh, trading in a different way that you were offering will actually lead to better results. You have to be willing to commit a certain amount of order flow, I would think, in order to kind of like, make you know, whether it's A-B tests or however you do it. So how do you think about that challenge?
4: Yeah. So the level of data that you need to sort of prove out, let's say, parent order slippage statistics for day-long orders or multi-day orders is humongous. It's a lot of data. So because of the noise, um, it's very hard to say anything like that. We don't expect that's a problem unique to us. That's probably a problem that even many buy-side firms, if they aggregate all their data over brokers, they still don't necessarily have enough data to say something definitive about that. So our approach to that is kind of on on multiple dimensions. One is that we're working on designing metrics that can help denoise arrival without being sort of as circular as VWAP. So you don't want to compare yourself to something you're also impacting, but you can try to use contemporaneous trading activity and correlated ETFs and things to try to bring that noise down. So we've been able to do that to some extent. Another approach is just our our research. We start from the same chicken and egg problem as designers, which is how do we think our algos are good? Like Why do we design them the way they do when we didn't start from having a huge data set to start with, right? Like We have mm-hmm. to start from nothing. And so we found ways to leverage historical market data because Mm -hmm. we all like to think we're special snowflakes, but at the end of the day, the things your algo does, like crossing the spread to take or posting passively are things other people do all day, all the time. And so that data is out there and we're able to build models of how those actions impact prices in the short term and build and validate algos off of those models. So we have a lot of confidence in our process and in our historical data modeling proving it out that it's working in practice we don't yet have enough data so what we're able to say is that what we see in practice is consistent with what our models expect um but yeah but we need people to kind of take that leap of faith and and put that amount of data into it which is true for any sort of product in this space
2: right and and just kind of like to be able to um have faith also in the process that you're using in order to evaluate, um, uh, right? Because I yes. I would imagine that there probably are concerns that there are people out there um, offering services that tend to um, uh, cherry pick or otherwise perform, uh, present performance data in a way that is designed to... Well, I was going to
1: say the same thing. It, Allison was pointing out how very, very true, statistically significant. A lot of people don't have statistical significant data, but they'll spout that they do and...
4: And even yeah. if they do, the yeah. no, I, yeah. if you'll allow me a little rant on statistical significance, because I can't help the math professor. I can't imagine anyone coming better.
2: Out. Nobody would be better positioned to do it. So you you go with it, girl. Right.
4: All so right. historically speaking, the notion of statistical significance was designed in an era where it was really hard to do a study, where you'd have to get 100 people to do a survey and you'd have to collect it over months. And there were very few scientists doing this. And so it was this bar of like 5% and like under the assumption that your data is very normally distributed, it's a perfect bell curve. The bar of statistical significance is, is there a 5% chance that this finding is false in that sort of perfect simulated world? Now, if I run 20 tests and each one has a 5% chance Mm -hmm. of sort of being false, one of them is going to be false in expectation. Mm -hmm. So in a world of big data where we run a 100 tests, We find something statistically significant doesn't mean anything. We need replication. We need more filters. We need much higher standards on the process now that we're doing much more computation. And we haven't sort of gone back and updated that. So at your point about process, it's like I can do a lot of A-B tests and that have weak statistical significance. And I can basically walk around like a chicken with my head cut off. Fixing this (laughs) and fixing that. Fixing this and it's not very meaningful. So the process is why we have confidence in our approach and why we Mm -hmm. think it's different and something that we don't think is being done very broadly with that level of discipline.
2: I think that's a perfect answer. Very well explained. They're They're choosing not to bullshit the industry.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's what it means in your terms, which is the important thing. Do you want to talk about, (laughs) do you want to talk about founding a company uh, during a pandemic? I mean, you guys couldn't have timed it more perfectly, we <laughs> did, we did
4: start it before yeah. the pandemic, so it was That's not a, it That's was true, not right? a knowing decision Well, yeah. launched
1: though as a trading. we plan. did launch yeah.
4: it yeah. yes yeah,
3: mm-hmm. which is probably a difficult time to do it, right, yeah, I mean, so part of my reason for leaving i x in the first place is that my family was moving cross country, my wife took a job in San Diego, she's a doctor and IX at that point in time, it wasn't set up for remote yeah, There work. was no remote there were No, there were yeah. no, yeah. just, just Stockland in Chicago. That was the only yeah. one. Um, and so it was like, kind of like, that was like a good catalyst to kind of like, let's, you know, and Alice and I were very close and, you know, we worked very closely together here, but we we're kind of like, what is our future here? And what is our, you know, what are the next steps for our careers? And so it was kind of like this catalyst that led us to, to go out where we were already expecting to work remotely. I was going to be in San Diego. She wasn't, she wasn't going anywhere. She's still here. Lifelong
4: New Yorker. <laughs> and so <laughs> <Not> going anywhere.
3: <laughs> And and we actually we hired Han as well, who is an engineer at IEX who lives in Canada. And so like we had this already international remote team from literally day one pre pandemic. And so going into the pandemic, like we already had all these tools set up and we were already kind of set up for it. On the client side, I mean, absolutely, that's been a, a struggle. Of like yeah. you're asking people to take this leap of trying, you know, being the first adopter, the earliest set of adopters for a brand new technology and we do have the, you know, track record and the credibility and we know a lot of people in the space and you look at the things that we worked on when we were here and the things that we worked on at, at RBC and I mean, Allison. She goes into any room, and you know she has, she commands the full attention of everybody. And that is true whether it's in person or over Zoom. But it still is, you know, having that level of connection. And that I think it has been a challenge for us.
4: And I think just a lot of inertia sort of set in at places where like this is not the time to try new things, or this is not yeah, the time. to Yeah, that's make what changes. I was thinking. Yeah. yeah, so that's been a challenge. Because
1: even prior to pandemic, you had a lot of buy side at least telling us that they're lowering the number of brokers. They're using too many brokers, and every broker has a view app, and every broker has a POV, etc. And then over the pandemic, it seemed like it was
3: even harder to engage them. So it's true, but I think yeah. there's also these like regulatory tailwinds yeah. and there's there it has been this decreasing emphasis on just paying for research and paying for corporate access, yep. where a lot more focused on best execution. And so I think building into those tailwinds is kind of the the one counter. Like we are very different. We're not just asking you to add us as cookie cutter broker number ten. We are a very different very unique offering working on the thing that you're kind of moving into so well,
1: that was the, that was the question i was going to ask next actually right so you obviously have clients you're up and running you're trading every day thank you we see you trading okay. on our platform as well and um you know we've many by side who listen to this podcast what prompted those that joined you to take
3: the leap of faith or so i think it was, maybe not an easy one to answer but <laughs> So I think I mean trading cost. Trading is a cost. Execution yeah. is a cost. I know some you know some firms like to think that they have edge in their trading as well, but really most you know the vast majority of funds trading is a cost. And if you lower execution costs for the buy side across the board, that's just good for the. I mean, it's bad for the certain middlemen who make money off of it, but in general, that's good for kind of all of our constituents. Yeah. So. Our work at Proof is really kind of a, you know, we like to think of it as an R&D expense for the industry. And so, like, the early adopters see that and recognize it and want to fund this, you know, it was very similar with IX of that initial pitch to those initial set of investors who are all buy-side firms. They weren't necessarily looking at this as an investment that's going to return us money. They were, yep. I mean, you can go, you can talk to that better than I do.
1: No, but they, they wanted to see the light of day. So they, like, that. that was... Primary reason for funding,
3: yeah, yeah. and so I it's think a it's, similar, it's a similar, yeah. you know, it's different. We're not asking for investment dollars; we're just asking them to turn us on, which is a lighter ask. I think we saw how hard it was for you all, for you yeah. and Brad, to raise that money in the early days, and we didn't want the to- hardest thing we've ever done. I'll tell you, <laughs> Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so for it us, it's- shivering.
1: Ooh. <laughs>
2: No, it's hard for me to pry any money out of him. It's like old uh, Scrooge
1: over there. I'm sorry. <laughs> this happens every podcast. Yeah, I just I'm let him sorry. go, and then I edit it out. You miserable
3: bastard. <laughs> yeah. Okay, back so, to our hey, guests. Back to our guests. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so it's a softer ask, but we're just asking for your your trading flows for your collaboration. Uh, I think one thing we are looking to do is really focus on these small subset of early adopters and really kind of get in with them, not just in terms of what training tools they need or use or trading workflows they have, but kind of every aspect of their workflow that we can potentially help with, whether it's trading tools or quant research or, you know, data cleaning, any anything that we can help you with is just kind of this like quant outsourced helper. Uh, I think we're trying to focus on that. And we
4: see one of, you know, one of the gaps in the market there is that a lot of buy-side firms have data that they're sitting on, but don't really know what to do with, or don't have an ability to, uh, to sort of analyze it themselves or too busy. They don't have an in-house quant research team. So one sort of thing we can do is help on the sort of consulting side and sort of aim our research at the things that are valuable and interesting to their use cases.
3: Because there's always the, there's like TCA from a check the box regulatory perspective, and we're not looking to To work on that. But there's also just, you know, potentially a lot of insight there in how you're trading and what you're doing and what your brokers are doing on your behalf. And that is our expertise that, you know, we learn a lot from those collaborations. And I think the clients get a lot of that out of that too. One uh, piece of research, as I understand that you have done and delved into
2: recently, relates to the performance of D-limit. (laughs)
3: <laughs> which is a,
2: an it's order type Club, that JR. we are. Yes, no. I, I was wondering now, if that
4: would come up. And yes. now a word from our
2: sponsor. Um, no, it, this <laughs> doesn't mean to be an IEX pitch, but it so happens that you know, there was a lot of controversy about D-Limit. It's been cleared by the SEC, by the courts, by everybody. It's being used. and You, you guys uh, did put
1: out a paper, so we, we're not prompting you to say anything that you can no, publicly say. No, yeah, absolutely. There's really no pressure at all. Just make us sound roughly. really good, <laughs> really
2: nice. Yeah, whatever you'd like to say about that, that's fine. But you're not. Uh, but it's it's no quid pro quo.
4: Uh, yeah, sure. I can speak to that part of the paper. I just want to say something general about our our methodology too. For. Um releasing public stats is something we very much want to be able to do because we think what we learn from sort of looking at our trading data is useful to the industry at large and also holds us accountable so sort of putting that out there is a way of saying to all our clients like you all are getting this information you're getting a consistent story this is how we're making our decisions and we're able to do that because we put a sort of strong client privacy check in place that every stat we release holds true, even if you remove any one of our clients' data. So that's not a function of how one person is trading. And it's also a good robustness check. So we have a good confidence that everything we release represents a sort of true statistical um, phenomenon as opposed to a coincidence, because if it was very fragile, it sort of wouldn't pass that test. All right. Which is probably why you'll see in our, our reports, there's a lot of stats that's like, we tried this. It was not robust. It was noisy. We can't tell you what the answer was because we, because <laughs> we don't have confidence in that answer, right? Like, we don't think it's meaningful. Mm-hmm. But the, the one that you allude to that was uh, very meaningful and very stable across clients and across time periods in our training was that when we looked at those sort of like passive posting orders that we were doing in delimited IEX versus grouping all of our sort of non IEX uh, flow of that type together, the short-term markouts or the one-second markouts were, uh, significantly better at IX. And that was true across clients. That was true across time periods. And the amount of the improvement was, uh, much more than say the difference in fees and rebates, which is not how we make decisions based on fees and rebates anyway. Like, you know, we try to do the cost plus kind of philosophy of, you know, doing what's best for the clients. But, um, Just to put that out there, that that difference was a sort of higher difference than that
3: would justify. Yeah. So in other words, all the other exchanges would pay us rebates. IX doesn't pay rebates. So we, by focusing on IX as as opposed to another exchange, we're foregoing that rebate. And what we found is that that dollar amount that we're foregoing, that we're giving up, is half the benefits of the client. The clients are getting twice as much value from us using these order types that have these built-in protections on IAX versus what we're seeing on so, other. So standards.
2: even if you were in a position to pass along the benefit of that rebate to each client, the client would still be better off even if they were
3: paying, Twice, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, that's that's what the data shows, and I'll also say that you know we did used to work here, but we are no longer <laughs> investors in IX. We don't have it, any equity in IX. IX doesn't have a stake in Proof. We are fully independent. We're not. <laughs> and I saw Ronan slip you a bill a little earlier,
2: <laughs> so there
1: may be something under the table. But <laughs> no, yeah, and if you
4: and if the signal drops in quality, I will stop using it. So yeah. keep yeah. investing in that.
1: We are. Yeah. We are. Stay tuned. We just recently <laughs> filed because it'll be out by the time this podcast. Ooh. Oh, there we go. It should hit the mm. federal register all it will. any it day will. now. But hit we filed for version hit, six. Hit the fan and the Allison's federal Allison's protege Luke is a very happy man mm. that we, yeah. we we have that out of the barn. But yeah, mm-hmm. we're, we're going for our sixth version of the signal.
4: Great. Which
1: is on DPEG. and D limit will remain on V five um, until That's a version five. Yeah, version, version five. The listeners. Yeah, sorry, are we're very, very technical having here. Trouble
2: keeping yeah. up here. Yes.
1: Yeah. Look, it's great. It's great to hear a broker. Mm-hmm. Uh, honestly talk about the results because when we came out, obviously IEX is going to say this is what we think and it's better than the rebate and we have tech data saying that and we look at different markout times. it's all true. and It's all true. We we genuinely don't feel we're trying to hoodwink anybody, but the adoption wasn't necessarily there. Ironically, the adoption has mostly come from the prop community, many in the prop community who uh, wrote in comment letters against the approval of D-Limits. So um, it tells you when smart brokers like yourself choose to use the order type, I think it works. So use proof, delimit all day. <laughs> <laughs> proof, delimit
3: all day. If you've heard anything
1: on this podcast.
3: <laughs> I mean, it's true. Like this is, this is one of the things that we bump up against is this challenge of at the micro level, at the sub-second level, the statistics are very robust. And even with relatively little data... The numbers are black and white. And this was the case when we were working here. We we're working on these problems. And this is the case on the other side. When we're using these tools, it's very clear to see whether you're getting picked off or not at that sub-second level. We struggle with, you know, how do you show this multi-day order was traded effectively? That's a, a really hard problem and probably, you know, a bigger problem. But the venue selection and the tools at the venue layer, its this is low-hanging fruit. Like, it's very clear what you're getting. And so, yeah, of course, we're going to use the the most effective tools. So, Allison, you said something uh, really cool. Hopefully
1: I heard it correctly, right? But your clients, all your clients will allow them, you guys to aggregate their data anonymously. Is that right? So-
4: yeah. So we actually have a um, a unique client privacy legal agreement with them that we put out for them as, as an option, and it makes them the owners of their data. So from our perspective, they are the owners of the data. They get to decide what we do with it. We have a provision in there that if they decide to tell us to delete it, we have to delete it other than keeping some in cold storage copies for regulatory purposes. Um, so we really view it as our data. We give them the option to opt into aggregated data analysis, which all of them do. And we do that with these sort of checks in place. So they know that like when we publish a number, like what the delimit markouts look like, uh, we pick a range of like what we're going to round that number. And we will only really set if it's true when anybody's data is pulled out. So everybody has, gets to have confidence that that number isn't driven by their activity. It's yep. not revealing something about their activity. So it does represent a, a true average. Uh, a large part of my scientific career was studying cryptography and data privacy tools. Um, so I'm pretty up to date on like the methodologies for these kind of statistics. And our approach is inspired by something in the academic community called differential privacy, which is proving to a participant in a data aggregation that they're not worse off for participating. And mm-hmm. so that's the sort of philosophy we've taken on that.
1: Makes sense. But because you guys are so transparent with everything, if a client decided not to allow their data they'll still get all the results, right? They just yeah, won't, so they just, they'll yes. know that their data didn't contribute to those. I mean, we publish the results exactly. yeah. on the blog. It's public yeah. facing,
3: so, you know. No, so it's good that they're staying in, I guess I'm saying you can, there's... I think it's a yeah. testament to yeah. this early group of adopters, right? Yeah. They really do see this as benefiting the industry yeah. and they want like to see the light of day to, thing yeah. with yeah. IEX
1: too. Oh, that's, that's really, really interesting.
4: Yeah, but we don't have any kind of like, you have to participate in order to see the nope. stats. We in fact give them to non-clients, so...
2: So in addition to the very um uh, weedy in-depth data analysis, you both keep up to date on uh, issues about equity market structure, proposals about changes, you obviously likely have views about some of those things as well. One of the topics that is most talked about frequently is how do exchanges compete with other venues? Um, should exchanges have greater ability in terms of some kind of common Quote increment or trading increment, uh, which doesn't really exist now. Um, so do you have any perspective about those um, ways that you think, uh, you, you know, all sort of surrounding the question of, is there too, too much trading happening in the dark? Do we need better incentives for people to send orders to exchanges?
1: There was a question in there. <laughs> there was
2: a question. I was trying to leave it as wide open as possible so you could choose to respond to any part of that. You choose. you know, being very generous <laughs> Sorry, in the I mean, phrasing of my question.
3: Well, I think one. kind I think of, they fell asleep. <laughs>
2: <laughs> they did not fall asleep. And they're absor- They're thoughtfully <laughs> absorbing it. <laughs> it's a good question. Yeah,
1: um, yeah. Thank you.
2: So I think a lot of the that was nice.
3: A lot yeah. of the hot topics in this, especially in the regulatory space, do seem to center around retail trading and the you know crazy growth of retail trading through the pandemic, uh, and a lot of these you know. Tick proposals or alternative trading mechanism proposals, or trying to combine lit and dark and and bring that retail order flow into the into the fray with the rest of the market. I think it's pretty interesting. I don't know that we have strong views from you know our clients' perspective that that it's it seems like every time a new proposal comes out, it's like one particular set of firms that have a very vested interest that yep. lobbied very effectively and they got their kind of their proposal on the table and. I mean, it's it's yeah. self serving and it's, it's like a little bit disenchanting. But go ahead, Alison.
4: Yeah, I don't know that I have a strong sort of policy opinion on this. I think when it when it comes to retail trading, for me, the more interesting question is why. How are we serving retail traders as an industry? Like, are their interests well served? On not only the market structure layer, but the entire sort of process of how they're getting into trading, how they're being incentivized to trade, like the gamification front. So I'm sort of much more passionate about that kind of entry point that's creating a lot of, a lot of trading activity that I don't think is necessarily mm-hmm. serving the people who are doing that trading activity. And so I think the questions of sort of like the facilitation end of that are maybe a lower order term in my, in my opinion, compared to just like, how do we educate people and funnel people into the financial services that are the best fit for them? Mm. To me, if I were sort of on the policy side, that's the part of the problem I would be focusing on.
2: Yeah. Well, I would imagine that um, for retail investors in particular, um, they are, they're not making writing decisions themselves. They're not making decisions about where they're going to sense it. they really are trusting the system to deliver the best outcome for them. And that may be a lot to trust, From the standpoint of people like your clients, and I would think that this is true of institutional investors generally, is that, you know, all things equal, they would welcome the chance to interact with more of this sort of friendly, non-toxic, marketable retail order flow. If you could
3: figure out how to do that, both sides could benefit. Yeah, no question. I mean, I think reducing fragmentation is great for everyone except for the middlemen who benefit from the fragmentation. (laughs) So, But yeah. Yeah, having a regulatory impetus, like a regulatory requirement to adopt a new mechanism that's vastly different from what we currently have. Like that's something that's gonna take many, many years to come to fruition. But you know, preventing conflicts of interest. Like there's plenty of conflicts of interest throughout the industry, but especially in the retail trading world. And so, I mean, that could be a potentially interesting, you know, one fell swoop. This current mechanism that keeps retail off to the side, that's no longer allowed incorporated into the rest of the market without these, you know, new, bespoke, totally different, still basically segregated mechanisms. I think that would yeah. be pretty interesting. So you, you build proof under
1: like sort of, I guess, ethos is the keyword we use now all the time of like transparency, but it's something that IX truly believes in. You've done it from like early days on your technology. It's built in the cloud, like a lot Of people were saying, Wow, they they shared a lot of technology, mm-hmm. maybe helped people build their own platforms, but um, that's a good thing. Uh, transparency on like the client data, etc. Where, where do you go from here? Like, obviously, what's your plans? You know, what are you working on right now? Where do you see the future on this? More clients, more clients, <laughs> yeah, always yeah.
3: more clients. But yeah. I think, I think what I was talking about earlier of just finding more ways to take our skill set and our value proposition and our ethos, and just add as much value as possible to our client segment. Again, whether it's through the electronic trading tools and, and actual execution tools, or whether it's it's through how you make your decisions at a higher level, I think always, it's always going to be on the execution side. Yep. But there's a lot of different parts of a of a trading workflow, and I think we have a pretty compelling skill set that is really kind of useful, and our constituents are underserved on this skill set, and I think. Yeah, if we can find more ways to just help them, that, that's the goal. That's yeah. the dream.
1: No, because absolutely. When, when we talk to the buy side, many of them are being forced to cut costs, let alone bring on their own quantitative researchers. So outsourcing
3: that to an extent, I'm sure, is a benefit. And I think the transparency, transparency doesn't guarantee quality. But transparency is this vector for accountability where you know that we're so open about everything. That line it doesn't guarantee quality,
1: but it's a vector.
3: That's great. Yeah. I think that's like, that's your new slogan.
2: I mean, a lot it of it came
3: mean, out of our time working I here. I mean,
4: mathematically, that's not what a vector is. I would say it's a
2: mechanism. Uh, I'm yeah. <laughs> Allison,
3: vector I, it sounds, sounds cooler. <laughs> well, <laughs> it, <go. laughs> it worked for me. It's poetic license. Yeah. <laughs> part art, part science. Yeah. like it. Yeah. But I think, Ix, I mean, IX was the first ETS to publish its form ATS. And, you know, a lot of the things that- People we- love that. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I loved it. <laughs> yeah. I loved it. It wasn't well received at the time, but we anyway. Publish all of our signals, all of the algorithms, everything.
2: We're very open kimono.
3: And I think that's kind of, that's what we found is that, you know, that experience working here and being in that environment, it's, it's a powerful tool for showing the world what you've got and that it's got substance. And so adopting that approve it I mean, it was no brainer for us. Very nice.
4: I would also say you mentioned in terms of like the cloud platform and things like cost coming down. I think part of our vision for the impact that we would like to have in the industry is that the overall cost That this sort of middle layer of brokers is providing is not really justified. Mm -hmm. That we can bring that down. So some of that spend coming down is a good thing, and it enables somebody who's more nimble, somebody who's much more cost efficient, like us. Like if you're building these systems from scratch today, you'd build them very differently, and those costs could really come down, and that could get reallocated to better purposes.
3: Yeah, even without consolidation, right? This is pure technology spend. Right, that's something. Mm. Like, I think we're yeah, mm. we're an example to the industry that you don't need these hundred million dollar budgets. Like, as, as long as you know which aspects of your technology build are really important and which ones are just a complete waste of money, because yeah. you're not competing in those situations yeah. anyway.
1: People chase speed to say that they were fast without knowing why they needed to be fast when, in fact, they actually didn't need to be. But yeah, you have a lot of convoluted builds out
3: there. So it makes a lot of sense, especially now with you know <laughs> not to to pump IX too much, but the tools that you've built. Solve this use case that previously there was no way for the sell side to compete in this situation. You're just teeing up your client orders all the time to get picked up. There just isn't an, an option out there. And now there's these tools out there, but that even further, it already wasn't, you know, important to spend the money on these on pure speed, but now it's even less, less relevant and less necessary because these tools exist.
2: Amen. Thank you. I'd say that was well put and you've well justified your appearance on today's <laughs> podcast.
1: So. We have a question for you that we ask each and every guest that joins here. What's your favorite Wall Street movie and why? And some people ad-lib it with a Wall Street book. So you can go in mm-hmm. either favorite Wall Street movie or why, or
3: favorite Wall Street book or why. Shall I go first? You can go first. So yeah. I, re- I rewatched it on the plane over here from San Diego uh, just because I knew you were asking. It. Oh, right. <laughs> and it, it fully reinforced my, my choice, which uh-huh. is American Psycho. Oh, oh man, there yeah. you go. That, that is well, a great one. Yeah. I haven't seen that in a while. That's an epic movie. And it also reminded me, I don't know if you remember this, Ronan, but in the very early days when we were in the, you know, the windowless room with the money yeah. green carpet, I got us business cards. The very first business cards we yes. ever got. <laughs> and I, and that was, they were very much inspired by that business card scene. Oh, really? If you pull out your business card and you watch that scene, you see side by side. Oh, and, shit. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you're not remember. the
2: only one to pick that movie. It's typically been picked by our, uh, shall we say, darker, more introspective uh, guests. But I, but I, it's why I'm a big fan of the movie too, for sure.
4: <laughs> yeah, I was about to say there aren't that many Wall Street movies. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the genre because I feel like if you're going to try to be realistic, you should just go all the way. So let me give you instead a couple pitches for a more realistic Wall Street movie. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. um a hft action film where all the action sequences are less than two milliseconds
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: a flash crash movie that's less than 30 minutes long mm-hmm. or a movie that explains uh midpoint pegs by just showing you clips of whatever's playing in adjacent movie theaters
1: <laughs> I don't know
2: we'll get many crowds watching those I don't i, I yes it's a very clever answer but you didn't answer the question I, so you're still so you still have to answer. What's your favorite Wall Street I think movie, I'd
4: right? Pick one, Allison, pick one. I have yeah. to say The Big Short because okay, um, my brother's fiancé was one of the editors.
2: So. Okay. Well, well, that, that was a good my movie, pick actually. So that was a good one. That was Considering
1: good how complex that book was, <clears throat> to make it understandable to most, I, I thought that movie was
3: really good. Mm-hmm. So what about Flash Boys movie? When is that coming out?
2: I uh, don't
1: know. God only knows. They haven't found anybody who can play Ronan. <laughs> <laughs> I'll play myself. I'll play yeah. myself. No, no no, no, no plans that we are aware of. Mm-hmm. That's the truth. Mm-hmm. Alas. No. But no one leaves here with nothing, right?
2: <laughs> so, <laughs> I suspect our guests might already have be stocked up with this, but maybe
1: not. Maybe not. Do you have mm-hmm. your very own pair of box and line socks?
3: No, no, we
2: do not. No. no. Well, we'll walk fact, you over to like our swag room. That, yes,
1: the, I'm wearing some now. So. They're very comfortable. Yeah. I always very say yeah, most can- sock giveaways are mm-hmm. terrible socks. Mm-hmm. These yeah. are good. People yeah. write in and say, how good their feet feel. <laughs> their most we thankful moment some, for being on this podcast. What exactly podcasts, is the mechanism
4: for writing into a podcast?
2: Mm, I, I don't know. It's, yeah. A, yeah, don't, don't you, question you wouldn't understand it. it there's very
1: vectors involved. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Don't, don't question it. Yeah. You're trying. We to, uh, like, correlate to the data analysis <laughs> and uh, Twitter. <laughs> <laughs>
2: We're using that term loosely. They're writing and they're communicating with something. I don't know. We do our, get people who send photos of their feet wearing the socks. Our communications are supposed to, yeah, they're supposed to help us out. These we'll things. edit this in Channels later with a really smart answer. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, what we do is we take the square root. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, we appreciate you guys for being on. It's good to see you guys again. We wish you the best of luck. It keep, on it keep on trucking. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't let the bastards pop, get you down.
2: Don't let the bastards get you down. Cheers,
0: folks. All right.
2: Thank you. <laughs> Over, Over and up. out. Thank you for having us.
0: Boxes and Lines is a podcast from IEX Exchange. It is hosted by Ronan Ryan and John Ramsey, executive produced by Sarah Forster, with support from Benstown. For more information and to hear more episodes, go to iexexchange.io podcast. Thank you for listening to Boxes and Lines. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only. And IEX Group Incorporated and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversation may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group Incorporated, all rights reserved.